can hear it. Okay. Perfect. We're recording. Just want, thank you. Just want to welcome everybody. Glad to see you all here this week. Um, important updates, some housekeeping. Um, first and foremost, some of the essays, as I mentioned, for the journal that we're hoping to release uh, in December, pre-Hanukkah. Some of the uh, essays have been coming in and they've been fantastic. You know who you are. Um, beyond that, there's a survey that will be going out next week, which will essentially ask some questions relating to how the experience of the Talmudim have been uh, over the last few weeks and some of the ideas that we've got and some of the things that, you know, trying to ask what you guys want to get out of this in the future, because we've got a lot of exciting things planned. Uh, you're going to hear more about the survey next week. And also, speaking about next week, we have our very special guest who's here today as well, Raf Phillips, Rashmoli Phillips. Uh, he will be giving us a very special class uh, on theocracy, democracy, dictatorship. What system of governance does the Torah really seem to prefer? Um, I'll give you all his bio and stuff next week, but I'm sure a lot of you have already heard about him in his critically acclaimed uh, book. Um, without further ado, today we are continuing with the Hakdama to the Mishnah Torah. Rabbi Dweck, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Sina. Very much appreciate that. Okay, so I think that we, um, we're, we're in the middle of like, I remember that we read Yodzain, and what I really need to do, because I use a different book every time, that's the problem. I need to get the same book. Uh, and I can use these things, which are flags. <laughs> where I left off. Um, Do you have the Safari link? But anybody who's ever learned with me knows I never know where we left off, which is one of my problems. Okay, uh, what Safari link? What, for where we're reading? Indeed. Yeah, of course. Hold on. It's very easy. Assuming that Safari is working. Is Ezra in the room, I'm guessing? He is. <laughs> so, so can you stick it on the whatsapp i'm getting i think it. we're going to get it on the chat okay. he's going to put it on the chat good to see you right. daniel by the way likewise. likewise very good to see you i think we have to say it's been so long since i've seen you let's see it's been interfering with my uh uh wednesday night a date with my daughter to watch buffy the vampire slayer well i would never ever want to interfere with that that is extremely yeah, important. Uh, this, tonight I'm in I'm in oh. Kent in a farmhouse. All right. So uh, that works. Um, here we go. Yeah, I'm getting it. Okay, yeah. Okay. So I would say from here, really, um, and then you can like scroll down and follow along. Okay, so I put it there. Okay, so what we said last time was that Rabbi Nasi, he got these people together and he wrote the Mishnah, and then there were the people that came after him that were received from him, and they wrote the Tosifta and the and the, uh, the Baritot and, and so on and so forth. And Rabbi Yohanan was Mehabir the Tamud Yerushalmi, 
which was, of course, uh, authored before the Talmud Babli. And then he continues and he says, Right, from the Hachamim, and I, I remember we read this last time because I, I told you about Rav Tanal Balig, right, that whole discussion around that. Notice what it says over here. Notice it says, right? So it means there were, there were several Hachamim, and they were all Gidolim, he says, Harambam, right? These were all Gidolei Hachamim. And they were Mekaber from these, from, these, uh, from these people. Among them, Rabbi Yohanan, Rabbi Yohanan, Rabbi Yohanan, Rabbi Yohanan, Notice, it doesn't say It says Very interesting change of words. Harambam doesn't do that for no reason. Okay. Why does it do that? Why does he do that? So strange, isn't it? Why all of a sudden does Harambam go from writing to The Rambam doesn't do that for no reason. Nobody should do that for no reason. But certainly not the Rambam. Any ideas? Any ideas? I don't assume every anyone to really know it. I'm just asking because I'll be very interested if somebody actually does. It's not so pashu. Because what's happening over here is this. Megdolei HaChamim, we're talking about great Gedolei HaChamim in general, that in their own right are HaChamim and Gedolim. When we move from Rav Huna to Rav Yehuda and Rabban, Rav Yosef and, and, and Abayen Rava, what happens in terms of the transmission is different. There's a bit of a system that changes. That is that the Rashi Yeshiva of Bavel are the leaders of Torah study in their generation, even though they are not necessarily Gidolei Ador. The, the Rashi Yeshiva may not necessarily be the Gidolei Ador or the only Gidolim that are around there, but because they are the Rashi Yeshiva, they are in charge of making sure the Torah is transmitted appropriately. So in the second section, where in Yutet, I think it is, where it says, it doesn't simply say, it doesn't say because it's talking specifically about Rashi Yeshiva. And so the Rashi Yeshiva are recognized as that, but it's not talking about Gedolim. He will say later on, Harambam, notice in Kaf Aleph, go down, he says, So he says that they're Gedolim. But there in that particular paragraph, he's saying among all the hachamim were these men that were considered like Rashi Yeshiva. And he writes that later on also. He says, Mehem Rashi Yeshivot. Right? Among them were Rashi Yeshiva. But this concept of Rosh Yeshiva didn't necessarily mean that they were Gadol Ador. It just means that they held this position of Rosh Yeshiva. And so Harambam defines them there in order to be able to designate, to recognize them as being in charge of, of trans, transmitting. And so he finishes with not Ravashe, but Ravashe, but uh, Rabba Bar Ravashe, who was Mikabel Ravina. Yeah, 
but he recognized that the close of the Talmud occurs officially with Rav Hashem. And that's the end of Harambam's description and delineation and measurement of transmission from Moshe Rabbeinu all the way down to Rabbah Rav Hashem. And then what he does is something very strange. He then goes backwards, right? Repeats it all. So that's in Kaf, right? Which I have in front of me. If you And when I say Kaf, again, I, I don't know whether... Uh, uh, it's the same. I think it is. Yeah. In, in the Safari, it's the same. No, 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 it's not. It's not the same. Uh, in Safari, it's 21. Right? So, so he then goes backwards. And going backwards is important because what, the, what Harambam is doing in that backwards track, right, which we're about to read through, are two things. One he wants to show how important the transmission is, right? So he, go, he wants to show that it's coming straight from HaKadosh Baruch Hu down to Rav Asher, which shows, very importantly, that the Gemara is authoritative, that the Talmud that was written by Rav Asher and Ravina is authoritative, and it stems back from its roots to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Moshe Rabbeinu Har Sinai. And he wants to show a clear line all the way back which is shown in his initial presentation, but he meanders in the sense of he talks about the other people, there are groups here and groups there, and these among the groups were this. And in this last point, he draws dot to dot, right? It goes all the way back. That's one very important part of it. The second important part of it is, is by the steps backwards, he clearly delineates who was in charge of the Misira, which he does not do only in the uh, in the in the initial um, progression down from Sinai, as you'll see. So let's take a look. I'm just going to give you a few examples of it. I'm not going through all of it, but you'll see. So he says, Nimza, ad Moshe Rabbeinu. From Ravashe, and the reason he goes from Ravashe, because Ravashe, it says in the Gemara proper, Ravina Ravashe hem sof hora'ah. Right? The Ravina and Ravashe are the end of Hora'ah, which is very important for our purposes, and I'll get into that in a minute. Because remember that I should, well, I'll get into that now. Remember that I mentioned to you that Harambam's treatment and his wording is very precise. And there are some points in the Hakadama over here where he talks about a Rav Ubet Dino. And there are certain points where he doesn't mention the Bet Din. Right? Remember that? Right? So why does he not, not mention the Bet Din? Because according to Harambam, there was no Bet Din Agadol at that time. And why is it important to know? that there was no Bedina Gadol at a particular time. Because, gentlemen, when there is no Bedina Hagadol, innovation in the explanation and interpretation of a Torah law, of a mitzvah de oraita, is unacceptable. It cannot be done. And you are, you are stuck, for lack of a better term, at the decisions of the last Bedin, however far back that Bedin was. You cannot re-establish or renegotiate or reinterpret the decisions of a previous Bedin Agadol without your own Bedin Agadol. Once you have a Bedin Agadol, you can do that. And therefore, innovations in the aspects of Torah Shev Al-Peh are possible in that respect. But if you don't have a Bedin Agadol, then you can't do that. And that means that the authority of interpretation lies only with the last Beit Din Agadol. Where's the last Beit Din Agadol over here? 
זה רבנו הקדוש. רבנו הקדוש. So let's have a look at this. And he says, כן, where are we? בכל דור ודור ראש בית דין או נביא ש... Where is it? Okay. Look at Tedva. Again, I don't know what the, what the letters are, but if you look where it's, there's a paragraph. How am I supposed to, how am I supposed to give you the address? So it says, These were the Hachamim, the Gedolei Hachamim that were in his Bet Din of Rebbe Kadosh. Why is that important to tell me that Rebbe Kadosh had a Bet Din? What does that tell me about the Mishnah? What that tells me about the Mishnah is that the Mishnah is authoritative with the, with the authority of a Bed Din Agadol behind it. The interesting thing is, since then, according to the Rambam, there's no Bed Din, which means that the Gemara's authority is not the same as the authority of the Mishnah in that it has the backing an establishment of a Beit Din Agadol. The Gemara is still powerful and has authority, and I'll explain what that authority is, but it's not the same as the Mishnah. And that's why Harambam here clearly says that Rabbeinu HaGadol, Rabbeinu HaKadosh had a Beit Din Agadol. And interestingly, there was no Beit Din Agadol before him. There was a very long period of time there was no Beit Din Agadol in between. So that's an important factor. That's, not, that's number one. Number two, is we're going to see in a minute, in a little bit, that the, the strength of the Gemara is because of Haskama, is because of collective agreement, because the Hachamim were all together, and, and the majority of the Hachmei Israel were all gathered as one to agree on a particular approach or a particular authority, but not because it necessarily had the, the power of a Bedina Gadolvayim. It's very, very important. Okay, which is why, by the way, this is one of the reasons, by the way, you can have a Talmud Yerushalmi and a Talmud Babli and discrepancy between the two and decide how you're going to paskin, right? Decide how you're going to be posek. Well, you can have Klalim, when you're posek like the Yerushalmi, when you're posek like the Babli, there's places where the Rambam is posek like the Yerushalmi over the Babli. People don't know why he is and how he does. You can't do that with the Mishnah. Right, the Mishnah is the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the basis both for the Talmud Yerushalmi and for the Talmud Babli. And the Mishnah has a, a stronger authority in that sense because it is backed by the Beit Din Agadol. So now what Harambam does is he goes backwards, right? He wants to show you how it is that the line runs all the way back to Moshe Rabbeinu in terms of his understanding. And he says, What we find then is that essentially what we have is a dot to dot back from Rabashe to Har Sinai of 40 men. You can literally trace the Mesorah back 40 men, he says. How so? So he says, Ravashe received from Rava. Who's missing? Who's missing? Not, not about Barbarahana. I already established that. He starts from Ravashe because it says Ravashe, Ravina, and Sovora. But he doesn't say, first of all, interestingly, he doesn't say Ravina, Ravashe, Kiblu, number one. And when he says Ravashe, Kibel from Rava, who's missing there? Hello? Abaye. Yes, Abaye. thank you. Abaye. Why doesn't it say that Rava, that Rava received from Rava and Abaye? Notice he says 40 people, counts it very carefully. What happened to Abaye? 
He just said over here, just in the previous one, what changes? Well, we know we have a halacha, for example. Who's the halacha like? Hello? Halacha is like Rava. So that tells me that although Rava and Abaye were together and they were bar pelukta, they had they, they 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 learned together and argued together and and their havayot. You know, we talk about the havayot the Abaye and Rava. The discussions of Abaye and Rava are looked at as a synonym for the entire corpus of discussion in the Talmud. Still, Rava had authority. Rava was the one that was in charge of the mesora. Even though there was Kabbalah by Abaye, and there was Kabbalah Migdola Miklala Hachamim, there was a lot of people who were Mikabel. Rav, Rava was the one who was in charge. And that's one of the reasons why Halakha is like him over Abaye, except in these particular situations. Yeah? And Rava was Mikabel Mirabba. How come not Rav Yosef? Yeah, and so on and so forth. So I'm just pointing that out because that carries on. Yeah? Yeah, so notice over there he adds, he doesn't do that for no reason. Because talking about the authority and responsibility of these men and these people, and how among the who was in charge of the bearing of the responsibility of the Mesora itself. And that's what Rambam is establishing over here. And they keep the Mirabin Wakadosh, Miraban Shimon Aviv, Miraban Gamliel Aviv, Miraban Shimon Aviv, Miraban Gamliel Azakena Aviv, Miraban Shimon Aviv, Mihilel Aviv Shamai. All of a sudden he throws Shamai in there. Okay. And then notice what happens. Now we have Zugot. So those Hilel and Shamai, Shamai Abtalion, Yudab Shimon, there you had. A Rosh Yeshiva, you had a Nasin Rosh Yeshiva, excuse me, you had a Nasin and Av Bedin. Remember, those are the period of the Zugot. The Nasin and the Av Bedin had equal authority of transmission. Different than Rava and Abaye. Notice that. Yeah? Mi Yushua v'Netai, Mi Yosef v'Yosef. Again, you have these Zugot. Mi Antignos, Mi Shimon Now we go back to ones again. Mi and then we go into the Nevi'im. And the Nevi'im, mi Baruch, mi Yirmiya, mi Tzifaniya, mi Habakuk, mi Nahum, mi Yoel, mi Micha, mi Shaya, mi Amos, mi Hoshea, mi Zechariya, mi Yehoyada, mi Elisha, mi Eliyahu, mi Ahiya, mi David, mi Shemuel, mi Eli, mi Pinchas, which is a massive jump. Right? That's the famous massive jump between Pinchas and Ali. If you want to know my opinion of this, which, uh, again, it's only my opinion, so this is in no way authoritative or anything that you should pay any attention to, but I'm throwing it in there. It's important to realize there was no Bedin during that period of time between Pinchas and Ali. And so when it says, and, and notice, he says, there was a whole argument that Eli received directly from Pinchas, and they say, no, there were other people, but also from Pinchas. 
And essentially, the way that I understand it, in the most Pashut way, is that it says that he received from Pinhas because Pinhas was the last Betin. And that the transmission was happening through that period. Remember, the period of the Shoftim is this crazy period, right? The period of the Shoftim is this crazy, crazy period. And it's very difficult. And it says that in the time of Eli, nobody was going up to the, to the Mishkan, nobody in Hazon Nafutz. You know, it was a very dark, confusing time for Israel. So it's kind of like, you know, to take the analogy of Star Wars, like all the Jedi had to go underground, you know? There was no, there was no openness about it. There was no, there was not a great, so transmission was happening, but it, we want to look at it as though Eli received, and I don't mean as though only as, the, as, a, as though it's not true. It's true. Pinhas gave it over and it carried over very carefully, very secretly in a time of great turmoil and confusion and essentially chaos, right? Which is essentially time of team until it got down to Eli and could be reestablished in, in an established way. And that's why I think it says Eli got from Pinhas, even though it, it, it's, very, it's very likely that it wasn't a direct face-to-face -face reception, but it was a reception from Pinhas nonetheless. But again, I could get into a tremendous amount of trouble from people who want to get me in trouble by saying this. And so I, I'm not saying this in any emphatic way. I'm just suggesting that it's a possibility that this might've happened, but there are other opinions to this. And Pinhas to Yoshua, right? Because from Yoshua to Yoshua, Mimoshe Rabbeinu Rabban Shekol HaNeviyim, Meim Adonai Elohei Yisrael. The only thing I want to look at is Rav Kafeh's Nosach, because there's two Nushaot at the end over here. So let's have a look at what Rav Kafeh writes, which I didn't have a chance to look at yet. Let's see what's his Nosach, because I trust his more, even though this edition that I have in front of me is quite a trustworthy and fixed edition. Oh, listen to this. Okay, so listen to the difference of the Nusach, of the Girsa over here, right? So what I just read to you is the Vilna edition. That's how they have it in Vilna. And in the Frankl, I think in the Frankl edition is the same. So what does it say over here? It says, Mi Yushua mi Moshe Rabbeinu, right? So Yoshua received from Moshe Rabbeinu, Rabban shel kol the master of all Nevi'im, Mi'im Adonai Yisrael, from God, the God of Israel, right? How does Rav Kafir's uh, Girsa listed? It says, Mi Yushua mi Moshe Rabbeinu, Yoshua received Moshe Rabbeinu, U Moshe Rabbeinu mi Moshe Rabbeinu himself received from the mouth of the Gvurah. It says, it's saying from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Nimtza, what we find then, says the Rambam in this, in this Girsa, Shekula Me'im Adonai Yisrael. That all of them essentially received from God, the God of Israel. A very interesting difference in Girsa. Can you give a 30 second of why the, the Rav Kapach, for those who don't know? Because there's different Kitveyat. And so, no, it's in the Rav Kafar translation, and you know, no, it's not they, translation. the Rav Kafar has a particular Ktaviyah that he's relying on, which was essentially the Ktaviyah that they had in Teman, that was one of the one of the manuscripts. So this is the one that he uses, and there's reason why he uses. He explains in his Akdama all about the different manuscripts and, and uh, you know where they come from and so on. And so there's there's different there's different inyanim. Uh, some of them are shibushim. Some of them are just mistakes, but. Um, 
this seems to be two accepted girsaot because, um, and there is, there's more than one girsa that we have of the Rambam. That's why it's interesting. What I'd like to see, we have, see, I didn't read up on this terribly, but we have um, the Ktav Yad of Sefer Hamada, in which we have a few of them, in which they were written, they were copied by Harambam's Talmidim, and Harambam himself, on the, in the back of the book, writes, Sefer Zemugami Sifri. This book was checked against my, my book, and he signs it, Moshe bin Maimon. So it's like an authoritative you know, uh, uh, endorsement that this is an official, official transcript you know, of, my, of my book, which is the source. And we have that, which likely includes the Akdama. So I have to, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't looked at, I know that there's a discrepancy in Girsa, but I haven't looked at what's the Nyan of Girsa. If I take a quick look, I'll take a quick look of, uh, of Kafir. And he says, this is way off. What is going on over here? Oh, he doesn't even, he doesn't even bring a, he doesn't bring a note on it. Which is odd. He doesn't bring a note on it. Yeah. So, okay. So clearly what the Rambam is trying to do is, um, is to show that the Mesorah, the Torah Shabbat Peh that we have, is a direct link back to Har Sinai and Moshe Rabbeinu. And, you know, we're not talking about 400 people. We're talking about 40 people that basically were in charge of being able to transmit and bring it down. So he then continues and he says, He says, all of these people that we mentioned, they were the Gedolei Ador. Among them were those who held the position of Rosh Hashiva, not all of them. Mehem Rashe Galuyot, among them were people who held the position of the Rosh Galut, right? The Rosh Galuta. Mehem, the Sanhedre Gedola, there were those who sat in the Sanhedre Gedol, right? In the, San, in the Bet Dina Gedol. Very Mahem and with them, Bechol Dor Vador, in any regeneration, Alafim Urbavot, Shishamu Mehem, very Mahem. There were thousands and tens of thousands of Jews who learned from them and heard from them and experienced Torah through them. So this wasn't some isolation. What? One minute. So this wasn't some isolated sect, right? That was, that, you know, was running the secret knowledge across the generations. This was the way the Torah was spoken. It was, there were many, many, many people who heard it from them. And it runs from one generation to the next going Rama. Yes, Daniel. So the phrase here that he uses, Gador uh, Hador, yeah. what does he mean by it? Because I'm, would, I would be surprised if he means exactly what people use it to mean these days. I don't know what it is that people mean by it these days. What Harabah means well, by that is simply <laughs> they were the greatest hachamim of Torah of their generation. All right. Clearly. So, like that they were conferring clearly, upon them but not that they were the only ones. He says <laughs> they were recognized as Gedolei Durot. They were, the, they were recognized as the great hachamim of their generation. They were seen as such. And that's why it says they had all different roles that they played. But those roles that they played 
were other than or different than or side to this responsibility of being what Hanambam considers the Ma'atike Shmua. They're responsible for passing down the transmission of Torah Shabbat. That they were entrusted with, regardless of whatever role they held, whatever position they held, whatever official you know, aspect of the hat they wore, that was the core of their, of their being. They were hachamim gedoladon, entrusted with the transmission of Torah. So for whatever reason, they stopped being a Rosh Hashiva, right? Which we've seen has happened, you know, in, in the history. That didn't mean that they stopped being the ones who were entrusted with, with passing on the Mesorah. In other words, being Rosh Hashiva or Resh Gluta was not necessarily synonymous with being the Ma'atika Shemuar, the one that was responsible for the Mesorah. That, that had to do with being the Gadol Ador, right? Meaning the one who was, who was uh, for whatever reason, the one that was entrusted by the previous Moser to be the one to be Moser to the future. Okay? Then he continues, and now he gets into the question of <clears throat> the Gemara. Right? And what's the deal with the Gemara? So he says, look, now that we know that we have this transmission that is official, and it goes back, according to the Rav Kafech's Girsa, all of them are essentially receiving Torah from Hashem and Yisrael. What we have to understand is, well, we've stopped at Ravashi. Well, now what? I mean, why is there not a continuation of the line all the way down to the Rambam? Why doesn't the Rambam say, Ve'ani me'avi, ve'avi like, how come it doesn't, we don't have that? How come all of a sudden it stops at Rabashi? So he says, Ravina v'ravasheh, hem sof hachmea talmud. Ravina v'ravasheh, they're the last ones. They're the last Jedi. The last ones that are, are, are the, recognized as, as hachamim, that speak in Talmud, that are part of that environment, that space called Talmud. Rav Asheh was the main architect of the Talmud Bavli in Ereshinar, which is in modern day Iraq. And he did that This is about a hundred years after Rabbi Yohanan uh, wrote the Talmud Yerushalmi. Rav Asheh writes the Talmud Bavli. Right? He compiles and composes the Talmud Bavri. And then Arambam says, we have to understand what place the Talmud holds in our Mesorah. Because we can't just say, okay, now there's the Talmud. Arambam's entire purpose over here is to understand how the Mesorah continues. And clearly, if Rav Asher is the last Rav of the Talmud, and what we now have is for all intents and purposes, a written Torah Shabbat Peh, we have to understand how we're supposed to relate to that and why that acts in some, in whatever capacity it does as an authority of transmission for the Torah Shabbat Peh. So he says, well, I'll explain to you, says the Rambam. The idea around these two Talmuds is that they are perush divrei mishnah. They explain to us the words of the Mishnah, and it expounds for us the depths of meaning held within the words of the Mishnah. 
That's number one. Right? So that's the first thing that the Talmud's purpose is, both the Yerushalmi and the Bavli, although the Yerushalmi and the Bavli do it in very, very different ways, which, which we can address. But the Ramam is saying that the purpose of the Talmud is to be able to expound upon and explain the elements that are not clearly defined in the words of the Mishnah. And the reason why we need that is because the words of the Mishnah are the words that are endorsed and authoritative based on the last Beit Din Agadol we know. So we have to be able to understand it. We want to try and know it and, and recognize it. And then there's a question, okay, well, what's the official translation or what's the official explanation of the Mishnah? And what the Rambam essentially is saying is that the Talmuds that we have from Rabbi Yohanan, Rabbi are official translations and explanations. In addition to that, the Talmud serves another purpose or it brings something else to us. And that is, Varim shinit hadshu bechol bedinu bedin mimot rabbinu akadosh vad hibura Talmud. But there were things as well that were innovated, that were discovered in the days between Rabbi Yehuda Nasi and the end of the Talmud, or the time the Talmud was established, that are incorporated in the Talmud itself. They're incorporated in the Talmud. Dinim Muflaim. Was it? This is Dinim Muflaim. No, not necessarily Dinim Muflaim. It's just interpretations of any of the Dinim Torah, whether they're Muflaim or not. Right. Okay. Yoshua bin Zadon. Yes. Uh, were the people in Babylon aware um, that the Yerushalmi had been uh, published a hundred years before? It wasn't really and published. Well, it they was knew, uh, compiled. They knew, of course, they knew, of course, that there was there was uh, inyanim that were established or put down by Rabbi Yohanan in the Talmud Yerushalmi. And in the Talmud Babli, they talk about the fact what was written. They didn't always know or see because they relied on travel from one to one place to the next. So, you know, you have to realize that they would wait to hear, and we have that a lot of times in the Talmud, where they'll have a discussion in Bavel, and all of a sudden somebody comes back from Ezra Yisrael and says, well, this is what they say there. Like, oh, okay, fine. You know, this is what says in Ezra Yisrael. So, is it, is it, yeah. So it, they were aware say. of the fact that there were discussions happening in tandem and prior to much of what was going on in the yeshivot of Babel. Remember, in the yeshivot of Babel, were all over the place. You had Nardea and Pumbedita and Sura, and, you know, but there was stuff going on in Israel that they could only know by traveling back and forth. And the travels back and forth also, you know, how much information can you hold? It's whatever's in your head and what you heard and remembered. Yeah. So there were writings that went back and forth, but that too was not easy to expound and, and, and accept. One of the things that is important to realize though, is that they didn't necessarily hold simply because Rabbi Yohanan wrote down the Talmud Yerushalmi that that shut down discussion. But wasn't Rabbi Yohanan recognized as the, the biggest? Uh, That's fine. Time? Absolutely. But it doesn't mean that we stop the discussion. We can continue the discussion. And there may be other ideas. And we may not like necessarily what it is that they interpreted and how they interpreted. And we don't have to necessarily accept because maybe I heard differently. Maybe my Rabbi heard differently. Maybe the so, one, yeah, so, maybe, was it? So why don't we say, yeah, so the question would be like, why don't we say that Rabbi Yohanan would, would actually be the last one rather than, why, why do we continue to Rabbi Yohanan? He simply wasn't. <laughs> but he, he could have What been. ends up happening, what you're asking essentially, Yoshua, is my question. You are, you're essentially asking the question I just asked a few minutes ago. 
And that is, why is Rav Asher the last guy? It's another way of asking, why is Rav Asher the last guy, not Rav Yohanan the last guy? So why is he the last guy? Right? That's the same question. And the reason for that, we're going to see. Listen, bear with us, right? From all of these writings, the Mishnah, the Tosefot and Baraitot, and the Talmud in its development, and through all of that, we come down with what is mutar and asur and kasher and pasur and hayav and so on, right? From all that was gathered through all the generations and all the discussions and brought down to be able to understand what is mutar and what is asur and all of those various aspects. In addition to that, there's gezerot. So it's not just interpretations of Torah law and definitions of Torah law and the various aspects of Torah Shabbat Peh that come with it. The Hachamim also had authority to make decrees and takanot and to establish behaviors. And those too need to be recorded and were recorded in the Talmud. So there's that aspect of it. And there are things that they did, la sotziyad la Torah, in order to create hedges around the Torah to delineate boundaries as to what we can touch, what we can't, where we should go, what not, where we shouldn't go in terms of the law and practicing the law. As they heard from Moshe, who explicitly commanded that these kinds of things need to be established in order for the Torah to maintain its integrity and strength, that Mishmeret needed to be established for these things. They understood that as HaKadosh Baruch saying, you need to create a watch for my thing that I've put for you to watch. Needs to be protected. Therefore, there, it also includes all of the Gezerot and Takanot that were made in every generation as the Betin saw fit in each generation. Because we're not allowed to veer from them when the Betin establishes them. And in addition to that, Mishpatim v'dinim peleim, which is what Daniel was talking about. Shelo kiblu otan mimoshe, v'danu ba'em betin agadol, sheloto ador, v'midosh ha-Torah andreshet ba'em. And there were things that Moshe didn't talk about. There were things that Moshe didn't say. There were a whole bunch of things that were not mentioned and discussed that the hachamim themselves needed to be able to respond to because of the innovations of, of society. And those were things that were extraordinary from what was given over from Moshe at Sinai as part of the basic corpus of Torah Shabbat Peh and Torah Shabbat And those are things that were established and incorporated as well in the writings of the Gemara. And the using the hermeneutic rules that we've seen. And the established them. Hakol! All of it was incorporated by Rabashe into the Talmud from the days of Moshe until his days was all encompassed. There were other Hiburim. This he puts on almost as an addendum, right? There are other things that were just written to be able to be Mefaresh the Torah. 
itself. And those were Rabbi Hoshayat, Talmidor, Shabir, Akadosh, Habir, Biur, Sefer, Bereshi, Rabbi Shmar, Peresh, Ele, Shemot, Atsof, Torah, Huanikra, Mechilta, Echen, Rabbi Akiva, Habir, Mechilta. There were midrashim that were written in terms of explaining the Torah. All of that was written before the Talmud Bavli. Talmud Bavli was the final thing that was written down by the Hachamin. And therefore, Harambam now needs to explain why the Talmud has such strength and why it was such a major end to the entire thing. Nimtza, what we find then is Ravina Ravasheh, Behavrahim, Sov Gedole Hachme Israel, Hamatikim, Torah, Shabalpe, Vegazu, Gezerot, Hitkinu, Takanot, the Inhigu Minhagot, they are the last ones that had the authority to establish Gezerot, decrees, Takanot, behaviors, and that people need to do in order to be able to create a structure of society, to establish behavioral uh, approaches to things, which is minhagot, to establish definitions of law that were not given over to Moshe Rabbeinu. All of that, all of that happened until the close of the Gemara, because what was happening until the close of the Gemara was transmission. And as long as the ball was being tossed, these behaviors and treatments and studies in Torah al Pit could occur. There may be variations in terms of its authority and tokef, right? It's, it's, it's power, but it could happen. In other words, you could go into the wiring, so to speak, of Torah al Pit itself and develop it. That stops here. We are not now from this point on, it's all under glass. We're no longer allowed to go into the motherboard and tamper with the wiring. And that's a massive thing because that means that there's a severe aspect of Galut that, that sets in that we experience that from that period of time for about 2,000 years, less than 2,000 years, about 1,952, years, that this sets in. And there's powerful suffering that occurs as a result of it. That all of us today are experiencing in ways nobody has of our people beforehand. Before what we're experiencing now today in our lack of capacity for innovation and response. But it stops there. Ahar after the Bedin of Talmud, and there you have it. The reason it all stops is because everybody scatters. You don't have the strength of a unified people, at least, at the very least, geographically anymore. And once the people disperse, you've lost it. You need, and that's why, by the way, that is why they wrote the Talmud. The reason they wrote the Talmud down, which was not a thing that anybody should have ever done, the reason why they write the Talmud down is because they recognize that after Hillel and Shammai already, the Talmudim amit ma'atim, and things are going downhill. And the Rambam writes, right? They saw it. Look what it says. What ends up happening is people start getting dispersed. 
The Roman Empire is starting to dissipate. People are spreading to far out lands. Wars are happening, right? So peace of empire is no longer held. There's wars occurring and things are starting to break apart. The pathways of being able to travel ended up getting obstructed. Talmud Torah. And as a result of that international upheaval, study of Torah was encumbered. We were not able to study as freely and openly and peacefully and, and, and uni, in a unified sense as we used to be before. Used to be, there was in Babel and there's Israel, maybe some in Alexandria. And you traveled, you know, in triangles, back, back, back and forth, back and forth. And you, you know, it was cross-pollination between two, and that was it. And you had the, the Nasi and the Resh Geluta, and that was it. And that all dissipated and fell apart. And as a result of that dissipating and falling apart, who are you going to transmit to? And from whom? And who's the authority? Something that we can very much relate to today, no? But the truth of the matter is, is that we don't even relate to it today. Because what used to be was, well, okay, so now you had people all over the place. But at least wherever they were, they had their own bitin. They had their own little establishment, right? It's like here in London, the Sfaradim. We were in control until the Ashkenazim came. And then they decided to make their own bitin, which was against the law. But they did. And the only thing that's left from that, by the way, is that when the Ashkenazim write a get in London, they have to spell London and the Thames River like we do, like the Sfaradim do, because it's Akom. So they couldn't get out of that. So they have to write Thames, not like Yiddish spelling, they have to write Thames like we spell it, because it's Menagam Akom, because we were the first Bedin, and we had a Bedin from day one, from 1656, in, this, in the country. But that's how every country was. Every country had their, had their group, and the Beit Din was absolutely authoritative for those people. But now who's going to say, oh, who said, you're a Matik you know, you're in London. Why should you have any say on what we do over in Amsterdam or what we say? I mean, he actually did have say what they did in Amsterdam, whatever, in Rome or wherever else that we are. Why should there be any question of your authority anywhere outside of your Arba Amon? It was impossible. So how, who are you going to transmit to? There's no transmission. And that is why the, the Gemara's authority was not, so, not necessarily an authority that could not be argued or that could not be, that could not be uh, uh, questioned as was done all the way from the time of the Mishnah on. It was that there was a recognition among them that if that was going to continue to be allowed, the Torah would fall apart. And so there was a collective acceptance that that was it, that the Gemara established in its, right, in its written form was authoritative. And it's very similar to the Tanaim and the Moraim, the Moraim agreeing not to argue on Tanaim. There are certain acceptances, collective acceptances, that we established as a people within ourselves in order to be able to maintain cohesion and structure of Torah. Even though in essence the Torah would allow for such a thing, we did it in order to be able to support its survival. And you can see that throughout the years, right, throughout the generations, we're doing things that are not necessarily what's meant to be in the essence of Torah. Who's going to write down a Mishnah itself? Writing the Mishnah itself was crazy. Yeah. Writing down the Gemara itself was crazy. 
But we did it because we needed to be able to ensure the safety of Torah given everything that was going on. And that also meant that we were going to accept the authority of the Talmud in ways that authority of, of previous generations had never been accepted. Because we recognized the, 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 the issue and the problem. What, what's going on? What's going on in time? Death of Rabbi Sheh. Yeah, exactly. Until the Han vandals, the whole thing was falling apart. The peace and strength of the Roman Empire, say what you will about empire, at least held things together. And everything was falling apart during that time. So, um, so we didn't have these masses of Israel in one place coming in to learn together anymore. You had a few people that came in in whatever society because everybody else was working on surviving. You didn't have an opportunity or the luxury to be able to sit and learn. Or very special souls that continued to be able to learn in subsequent generations. Every city had its own hacham, or whoever was it, was able to learn. And then what they had to do, all of a sudden learning changed also. How, I mean, it's important to be able to understand the weight of this. The whole nature of learning Torah changed because the whole nature of dis discourse and dialogue was no longer with the wiring of the system. Everything was under glass. All you could talk about was what it looked like under there and how you might apply what you saw under there to your circumstance in your life. So Torah all of a sudden became needing to read. Whoever had to read anything? Nobody had to read anything. You had to read the Torah Shebikhtar and that was it. Maybe some, you know, Megillot Starim that people had. It was dialogue. It was discussion. It was, it was, it was, it was dialectic. Not reading. I'm telling you, 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 you come in, you show somebody this from the time of the Gemara, and they would say, what on earth happened to you people? How are you supposed to read all of that stuff? Then they do their reading. It wasn't reading. There was, there was discussion. So that's no longer uh, the case. That can't, that can't happen to me. Now it meant if you were going to be a Hachambi Israel, you had to be well-read. And the Talmud is not an easy thing to, fit, to, to, to learn, you know? I mean, for the majority of its history, people didn't know the entire Talmud. As a matter of fact, this is something people don't realize. The Rambam writes Pifirush. In the Pirush HaMishnah, says, There's nobody who can know the whole Talmud all at once. It's the Rambam who did, right? But he writes that explicitly. What he really means is that, you know, nobody can recall its entirety in one, in one sitting, in one place. You know? yeah, I mean, you have to learn through it and remember and go back and forth and, and so on. So this is terrible tragedy. By studying the Hiburim now, by studying the authored works, we begin to understand what is the nature of the law. But nobody's able to innovate anymore in terms of actually defining a definition of a mitzvah or the, the new responses to things that came up by looking directly into the Rosh Bechtav and establishing that's uh, not allowed anymore. Nobody does that. Nobody can do that anymore. I haven't been able to do that since the time the Talmud closes. All they can do now is apply. They can take what they study from the Gemara and apply, which still, by the way, is massively opened. 
there's still a massive amount of room for innovation in Hidush. But as the time went on, more was written, the less that happened. Because psychologically, when we see the written word, it's very, very difficult for us to be able to pull away from clear words that are written down in front of us. Okay, we're going to stop here. Questions? One, one question, Rabbi. Um, so once again, if, if it was forced upon us, upon the people in, in, in Babel to close the Talmud, doesn't that imply that it was kind what of left us much Because of circumstances. Okay, fine, whatever. But like, that no, means, no, that, that implies, well, that implies, doesn't that imply that it was left unfinished? It must have been left unfinished because it wasn't because they wanted to yes, close it. Yes, it's true it. that the Gemara didn't have a hard close. Meaning but there Rabbi should Sheh be was room for innovation. What is it? Meaning there should be some room for innovation, or not innovation, but like some things that must have been missing because they didn't want to close it. They it wasn't to. that they didn't want to close it. It wasn't that they didn't want to close it. It was that Rav, that's why that's why Harambam stops at Ravashe and he doesn't include Ravashe. He's clearly saying the end of the authority is here. It could be that this course happened. In other words, it wasn't this hard close that on you know June 17th, whatever it was, that we decide no more discussions. What happened was is that the discussions continued. And there was, a mo there was a gradual evolution and change from discussion in the Beit Midrash of this nature to starting to study the written works and understand them and apply them. So it wasn't like on one day everybody came together and said, okay, we're voting. But it was, it was recognized that Avashe's authority was essentially the last authority. And that too might very well have been something that was done as a retrospective into, into it saying, okay, it's getting out of hand. We have to make a line, and we'll establish it there. And that's it. So usually the hard lines that we're talking about are done retroactively, retrospectively, right? In other words, they're, they're looked at where things start to get around, and we have to say, okay, we're going to go back and delineate here. This is it, right? That's why there's a whole discussion about Rav. Is Rav Tanau Palig? Is he not a Tanau Palig? There's a whole argument about that. It's not so Pashut that Rav is Tanau Palig. Okay. Oad Vedida. What's the difference between takanot, gzerot, and minagim? Maharambam explains this in the Haktamat of the Purusha Mishnah. He goes through each and every one of them. So if you want to see clear delineations, you can see there. But gzerah is something where the hachamim decree like something similar to a mitzvah, right? Where you say it's mutar to do this, asur to do this. A takana is an establishment of behavior that is authoritative, right? So for example, uh, the fact that Rabbi Yohanan required us to take lulav and etrog all days of the hag instead of just the yom rishon. That's a takana. It's not a gezerah. So I'm saying, look, this is what you should act. This is a behavior that should be done, right? As opposed to a gezerah saying, uh, no wine of goyim stam, right? Not only in this, yeah? And a minhag is where the hachamim say that the, you have a, a variation of approaches that something can be done with. This is the way that we'd like to make official as how it is that we do it. So, for example, uh, you know, the Aravot on, uh, on Hoshan Arabah, right? Is it Mitzvat Nibim or Minhag Nibim? Yeah, but nonetheless, it spread and something that was established as a way to do things that wasn't mentioned in, in the Torah. It's not a Mitzvah Chachamim, but it's a behavior that was established and continued and done. Okay. Okay. Daniel. Thank you. Unmute. Unmute. Daniel. Sorry. 
I have a question about the sort of different texts within the Talmudic corpus. So on one hand, you've got the Gemara. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you've got the Sifre, Sifre, and, you know, and Tosefta. So the Gemara so the, the, is the proceedings of, of a Beit Din, in a way. But so if something, somebody refers to a, a sifra to support a point a discussion in the gemara how how strong is that really it's not the same as a mishnah and we've no. explained and we've explained also that even with the mishnah the moraim had interesting ways sometimes of dealing with a mishnah that they felt particularly encumbered or oh. for whatever reason they might have disagreed with and so on um which Rav Elchanan Wasserman also I saw. Rav, uh, um, uh, who, who brought it? Uh, he's now in Norway. Avi Garson. He showed me the Rav Elchanan Wasserman. I saw it years and years ago and I forgot about it. But he writes also in the Kobit Shurim that there were mm -hmm. points where the Hachamim had ways of dealing with the Mishnah. But um, those were brought as important authority but not as compelling authority necessarily, right? Hmm. So it depended, right? But anything that in the Gemara was being discussed was not necessarily being discussed only by, by opinion, right? These were, were, much of it was saying, this is what I heard. This is what I received. You say, well, it's very nice you're saying, but look, there's a Sifra, which was very strong. If you bring something that was written down and, and put down in publishing, that has a great deal of weight in and of itself. Uh, but it wasn't necessarily um, indisputable, right? There could be ways where they said, well, we have another makor or another source, you know, that we'll bring. <laughs> yeah. I am quoting Rabbi Khan and Wasserman. I'm from Los Angeles. And being from Los Angeles means that I have direct ties to Rabbi Khan and Wasserman because Rav, if there is any Torah at all in the city of Los Angeles, it's because of Rav Simcha Wasserman, who was the son of Rabbi Khan and Wasserman. Rav Simcha Wasserman sat on the lap of the Hafez Chaim. And he was the, because Rav Elchanan was the Talmud of the Hafez Chaim. And so Rav Simcha was single-handedly responsible for establishing Torah in Los Angeles. So if I had any learning at all, it was because of Rav Elchanan Wasserman on some level. So yes, I'm quoting him. Thank you for pointing that out, Elisha. All right. With that, I bid you good night. And see you Thank you time. very much. Cool Thank too. you very much, Rav. Everyone, thank you. And we'll catch you all next week with uh, Rafshmuli Phillips, who's actually here today. Raf Phillips, thank you for making it. Looking very forward um, to hearing this year. Cool indeed, indeed. Yeah, looking forward to that. Thank you, everyone. Thank you See you all next week. Take care. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bet Midrash. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast player. Don't forget to rate and review. Have a wonderful day.